0: Great, what a what a great way. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us, creating a new world. That's the calling on our lives. That we should be part of something here on earth in the temporal that points to something that's going to be true in the eternal. This morning is in a sense, because this passage in a way, is about giving us a big picture of what we are actually about. In the end, it's not about programs and worship services and whatever else we we might do. It is about being part of something that God is doing on earth that points to, that creates a picture of, that is a signpost that raises expectation for everything that is to come. And we know that's how God works. We know through the Old Testament, every time there was a sacrifice, what was it doing? Hello? It was pointing forward to the sacrifice. Every time a, a lamb, a bird, a dove, or whatever it was, was sacrificed. It was pointing to the day when the real thing would take place in Jesus. And so the writers of the Hebrews would say something like, Do you know all those Old Testament sacrifices? They weren't the real deal, but Jesus is the real deal. And, and we are called to be part of something... But it's the beginning of the real deal that points towards the ultimate real deal. And so you see it there in verse 11. You need it open in front of you, Colossians 3, 1, 2, uh, 11. <clears throat> Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or slave or free but Christ is all and in all we are called to build a community that begins to look like what's coming one of the tragedies of church life is that we all hope it's not what's coming are you with me come on lighten up a little bit it be a long morning otherwise then gosh if that's what heaven is like, I'm not sure about it. And that's because we've created an an outward and over-dependence on some outward external form. And and what, what we're being brought back to here is that there is a community that brings people together that is so alive because Christ is at the center of it. I mean, that would make a difference if he was here this morning, wouldn't it? And, and, and a community where Christ is at the center and, and we anticipated in Revelation, he says there isn't much need for any other light because Christ is at the center of, and his life and his light and his joy and his peace is what makes the whole thing happen. And we are to be that community with Christ at the center where everybody is invited. You see, it doesn't matter whether you're Greek or, um, or Jew or... This is a new community where there are no racial distinctions. Everyone's invited. This is a new community where there are no, if we can put it like this, religious or ritualistic distinctions, uh, the the circumcised or the uncircumcised. And we have that kind of distinction in all kinds of ways. Historically, we had it when there were two services on a Sunday. You know, the, the circumcised, the proper ones, they came in the evening as well. And the not so proper ones, they just came in the morning. And, and you can think of a million perhaps more contemporary examples with the people around you where we judge people according to some external ritual. They're in Sunday, they're in church every week, so they must be the circumcised. And then there's the rest of them that don't quite make it for whatever reason. And No, no, no. This is a, this is a community with those kind of external ritualistic judgments that we make all the time on one another and all our judgments are different because we make a judgment that makes us feel slightly better than the others you with me that's how we do it i'm going to feel good by making sure i think of someone else who's a bit less but this is a new community where it's going to be different and there aren't going to be any cultural uh divisions either or intellectual divisions the barbarians the, the barbarians, literally, and the Greeks used to think that the barbarians, because they couldn't speak Greek, were just stupid. Literally, they're just bleating away like lambs. That's why, that's why when they want in soap operas and movies and stuff to convey someone who's really stupid, they give them a Welsh accent. Barbarians, bleating on. Why is that? I feel offended and hurt and cut to the. An a Scythian... That was just a stupid barbarian. Can you imagine? How low can you get? So in other words, there's this society where, where some of us have got the intellect and we've got this and we've got that, whatever that gifting might be, and then there are others that haven't, and that creates a division. They say, no, it's, it's, it's not going to be like that. Those divisions are going to be overcome. There, there's no, sorry, an, an economic, intellectual divide, no economic divide, slave or free. Free. That one of the tragedies of the church is that we've become economically divided. There are posh, middle-class churches, and then there are poor churches. And then, sadly, because we really missed out when all the, there are black churches, because we didn't welcome them into our white churches, and a lot of life is in black churches, and we wonder why we're half-baked sometimes. We missed out, because of a racial prejudice, if we're honest about it. One of the embarrassing things about this church is its architecture. Upstairs, where the servants would have sat. So think about that for a minute. You're sitting downstairs because your servants are sitting upstairs. And think about the architecture. They have a separate entrance to you and a separate staircase. And they have even more uncomfortable pews. I mean, harsh or what? The pews upstairs are narrower, aren't they? Yes. (laughs) Pray for those struggling upstairs with their narrower pews. Do you know? Uh, so, So this is a new world order where all of this is done away with. Now that's something worth fighting for, isn't it? Something worth creating. But the fight to create that new world is where? The fight is in your heart and mine. We have all kinds of laws and rules and regulations. For example, to protect us from being racist, because without those laws we know that people wouldn't do it. So there's a we create this framework to try and help people behave in a way we know they would not naturally behave if they were left to their own devices. What Paul is talking about here, is becoming new people in Christ. So it is genuinely the way that we behave. You only need rules to help people behave in the right way when naturally they wouldn't. If we all honoured everybody's possessions, you wouldn't need a law or rule about stealing. The reason it's there is that people are tempted to take what isn't theirs. There's not an external solution, fundamentally. But what does this chapter say? It says that uh, fundamentally there is an internal solution. It's about Christ being in us. Christ being in all. Just as Christ is all and is in all. It's a change of heart. And that's what the Old Testament promised. That there would be an offer of a new heart. Our hearts of stone would become changed to a heart of of flesh, that we would see this change. Just a bit of context in uh, chapter 3. Paul's doing what he typically does in his letters. He spends the first two chapters, or the first half of a letter, talking about right belief, uh, and then he follows that with right behavior. So you get orthodoxy, right belief, first two chapters of Colossians leads to orthopraxy, right behavior, in response to that right uh, belief. That is what happens when we become the people that we are supposed to be. We don't need these external rules. We intrinsically embody what's true, and therefore we live out of that truth. So if I intrinsically embody the truth that every single person is precious and unique because they are made in the image of God, that is an internal reality for me that should affect the way that I behave. You're with me? But sometimes, because we're all a work in progress, our hearts betray us and our thoughts give us Away. This is an invitation in Colossians to meet the Jesus that's talked about in chapters 1 and 2, that we might live out of that truth and build authentic communities with the barriers that we've put between us uh, come tumbling down. Romans is the same. You get to Romans chapter 12. Therefore, Romans 1 to 11, all about Christ, all about his truth, verse. 1 of chapter 12, therefore, and it talks about how you go on to live. Ephesians is the same, chapters 1, 2, 3, and then 4, therefore, this is how you go on to live. So the right truth in us leads to the production, the producing of right behavior. The more we need to rely on the external rules is a sign the less our heart is engaged with the new life that Christ uh, brings to us. And we see that in, in, in incredibly kind of... Um, stark ways. We see it in our nation. Once once the truth of what is right and wrong loses its bearings, so we've gone from being a a kind of quite Christian-based culture to a a secular-based culture, people have got no way of working out what's right and wrong now. And so we've created a new sense of what's right and wrong, which is basically everything's right as long as it makes you happy. Uh, And actually, that's not working out too well for us, as we see from day to day. So you get this, right belief leading to right behavior, and there's a third B, isn't there? It doesn't mention it here so much, but it's the product of it, and that's the belonging. In order to sustain that life of right belief leading to right behavior, we need to belong in the right places, because birds of a feather, it's not in the Bible, but it could have been. Just in case you were thinking it was in there. So, that's the invitation. To create this new world that is a signpost of everything that's coming. And and do you notice how important that is? Even in all, probably in all of the hymns that we talked about this morning, that sense of what's coming is where it all leads to. And we're called to be signposts to that which one day will be fully true. So, chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, how, how do we do it? Since then, you have been raised with Christ... That's past tense. You have been, isn't that interesting? You have been raised with Christ. If you think about it as something that's coming, it is so true, it's so real, it's effectively already happened. It's that guaranteed. It's, it's that certain. You are already, in a spiritual sense, raised with Christ. Since all that Christ has achieved you, where are you going to look? You're going to set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. If we're going to create a new world, if we're going to be signposts to what God is doing, we will need to lift our gaze. Firstly, by looking to the eternal Christ. To set our gaze on him set your mind on things above verse 2 is a repeat it's just like what preachers do i'm going to tell you what i'm going to tell you then i'm going to tell you and then i'm going to tell you what i've told you that's exactly what he's doing here verse 1 and verse 2 is re-emphasizing the same thing just like the psalmist did bless the lord O my soul and all that's within me bless his holy name same same thing okay um repeat for emphasis in other words the first thing that we need to understand, if we're going to be useful in building this new world order on earth that will signpost what God will bring to completion at the end of time, we need to set our focus, to set our lives, not on the temple now, but on the eternal Christ. The right perspective to look to Him. Perspective is super important, isn't it? We know that when things get out of perspective, it causes us all kinds of difficulty when that teeny weeny spider is spotted in your bedroom, honestly, who's the monster? the teeny teeny little spider oh the burby you know I mean that spider is well scared of you, but your perspective totally messes you up. you with me paralyzes you the perspective of <coughs> oh excuse me. isn't it? What would you give for a nice glass of water, everybody? Lovely. Come and help yourself. I've just dribbled in it a little bit, sorry. If you're going across the channel, you can go on a boat and it can be rough and stormy and you feel like you're in the eye of the storm. If you were in an aeroplane, you could see the storm, couldn't you? And nothing's changed, there's still the storm, but your perspective about it has changed. And, and, and we will live well. We will live with confidence that we are creating something new if we have the right perspective. And the right perspective is to set our mind, to set our hearts on Christ. That he might be at the center of the now and the not yet. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's a reminder of perspective. It's not that the things that affect us are somehow diminished, but we need to understand the greatness and the grandeur of Christ. And that puts those things into perspective. So where where, where are you looking? Where are you looking today? Honestly, if you look around, if you look around the world and its war-torn state, if you look around perhaps what you think is happening in the political scene, or you look around what's happening economically, you'll lose perspective. You'll lose perspective. It will be like those things are so much bigger than they actually are. These things come and go. But Christ is with us through it all. Secondly, lift your gaze. Not just look to the eternal Christ, but look to who is holding you. Look to the one who is holding you. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. This is a Glorious verse. Think in terms of being hidden as being secure and protected. If something bad was to come into your house or your home and you hid away in a locked room that kept you protected and secure, it's it's that kind of feeling. Your life, however exposed you feel right now, is hidden in Christ. Safe, secure, protected, doesn't mean that bad or difficult things don't happen, absolutely not, but ultimately the strongest grip on your life is Christ's, that's the strongest grip, whatever else might grab you and let go of you, whatever might seem to have a hold on you, the strongest grip Paul says is Christ, your life is hidden in Christ, he has you in his strong grip, look who's holding you and protecting you. As I mentioned at the beginning of our service, some of the most remarkable things for me in terms of remembrance is listening to the testimonies of people that have traveled through uh, times of of war. Now, obviously, as uh, the years go by, those living testimonies are are less and less um, uh, available. But I can remember Joyce Blake, for example, that some of you will know, talking about how when the air raid shelters, when the air raid sides came on, they would huddle together uh, under the stairs. And what was it that was protecting them ultimately? Was it the fact that they were huddled under the stairs? No. No, she would say, as we huddled under the stairs, we would sing this song that some of you know. There's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in His justice. Which is more than liberty. How can, you, how can you sing that in that context unless your perspective is right and you realize that above all else, we are in His strong grip? There is a welcome, it goes on, for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in His blood. There is no place where earth's sorrows are more felt. Than in heaven. There is no place where earth's failings have such kind judgment given. And so it goes on. You can read it, Google it. There's a kindness in God's mercy. Amazing truth in the midst of why? Because perspective is in the right place. Lift your gaze and know the one whose life holds you. When Christ, this comes in a sharp focus in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Lift your gaze, look to the kingdom that's coming. One day, one day. This is not vain and wishful thinking, is it? One day, it will be true, That's why we live for it now, not in a vain hope, not in a wishful thinking, but with the absolute confidence that what we work at here on earth finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God that is coming. So it's right that we give ourselves, not just to that which is temporal, but always with the sense of this is more than just now. This is more than just a moment. This is not just a going through the motions. This is the beginning of something that will ultimately be unstoppable until the kingdom of God comes and Christ is in all in the new kingdom that he ushers in. Lift your eyes. Our eyes are important, aren't they? Because they lead the way. Eyes are important because they lead the way in sinful acts. If you read what... Uh, John writes at the end of uh, in his letter of one John. Uh, he talks about that the, the, what we see leading to producing uh, fruit. So we, we're asked to be cautious about what we see. But it, it's the same principle here. Uh, where, where our eyes go, the rest of our lives follow. In 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 sport, lots of sport that is about eyeball coordination. The focus is not on your hands, but on your eyes. It's about what you see. Don't take your eye off the ball or the shuttlecock or whatever it is don't take your eyes off it i want to look i want to see what my hands doing i want to see what the... no keep your eye on the ball in fact we use that in popular speech don't we make sure you keep your eye on the right thing on the ball as we lift our gaze and keep our eyes on christ so something else happens our life itself gets lifted we get lifted out of all those distinctions and those divisions that we talk about and we well, our lives get lifted into a new Realm, and, and there are a few things that Paul reminds us about this new life. And the first thing is that you've got to keep putting to death that which is not part of your old life. Think about a film, any film you like, probably except a, a romantic comedy, uh, any film you like, and the baddie will be at some point appear almost defeated. And everyone relaxes and suddenly the baddie comes alive again at the end for a final battle. The baddie that you thought had been killed off somehow comes back to life. It's like that in our lives, Paul says. The old life, with those distinctions, with that judgment, with that separation, with that I'm right, you're wrong with that. I'm not going to be like them, we're going to separate. Us. The old life will keep coming back. You have to keep killing it off in the name of Of Jesus. And temptation is like that, isn't it? For a while you're going good, and then suddenly it's like it comes back. Don't be disheartened. Don't be discouraged. That's what happens. We need to keep killing it off again and again. Don't relax. Keep at it. Verse 5: Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature-sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is uh, idolatry-all sexual um, sins, probably. You might argue that greed wasn't, but probably in its context it was about sexual greed... Uh, well, why? why does he start with sexual sin? It's not the only sin, of course, and, and he goes on to, to talk about it not being the only thing. Uh, maybe because he was speaking into a culture that would become super promiscuous, super degrading of one another's honour. And that's the trouble. What separates us is that moment that we think of someone less than who we are, that moment we objectify somebody, the moment we, in our heads internally, put, reduce their sense of value to something less than being made in the image of God. And almost all sexual sin does that. And, and I guess I would say from a, a pastor point of view, sometimes people say, oh, the church goes on about sexual sin all the time. Why does it make such a big deal about it? Um, my experience would be, or my defense would be, I make quite a big deal of it because actually um, the, it's, it's the single thing that causes the most pain and destruction in people's lives, marriages, families, parenting, or the whole, the whole kabush. It is the thing that is so destructive. Why? Because it, it, it somehow gets to our core, the core of our identity. And, and, and when we abuse it, we're saying that someone is less. Someone is less than who God made them to be. I don't need to honor them in quite the same way. story goes of a vicar who had his bike stolen. You've heard this story, haven't you? And, and he couldn't remember where, 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 what had happened to his bike. And so he decided that he'd preach on the Ten Commandments. He gets to, thou shalt not steal. And he thinks this is going to nail it. So he really gives it some welly. But then when he gets to thou shalt not commit adultery, he remembered where he'd left his bike. Uh, And it sneaks up on you sometimes, doesn't it? Sneaks up on you and you think, where did that come from? And that's the point. Keep killing off the old life. Keep standing against it. Keep putting it to death. And so we get this list, sexual immorality, the straying from abstinence outside marriage and faithfulness within impurity, all about thoughts and fantasies and obsessions. Lust means lust, evil desires. The kind of sentiment here is that, um, and it's it's probably this way around, but in our culture it could be either way around, he had his wicked way with her. That kind of uh, uh, greed, probably in this context, as I said, meaning about sexual uh, greed and, and so on. And then he goes on to mention social sins. But now you must rid yourselves, verse eight, of all such things as these: anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So, in our church, just to be clear, we have all of those sins, both sets. Just saying, let me have another slip. We <coughs> we have it all because we're broken. And that's what, makes the, that's what makes the miracle of what God's doing us even better, don't you think? That God would take broken people like you and me, that have all this mix of stuff that divides and separates and wounds and injures, and says, do you know what I'm doing? I'm creating out of you, Lot, a new community where you are together and everything that divided is being stripped away because Christ is all and in all. That's why when the church becomes who the church should be, everybody stands back and goes, something really weird but good is happening with that group of people. That's why Jesus said, when, when you see their love, that then people will know. Something will, because it is manifestly different, and something that we all recognize that as human beings, of ourselves, we cannot do. This will be the work of Christ in us. Which is why just in the chapter 4, uh, he writes, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The work of Christ in our lives. And then the final metaphor is about what you uh, wear of clothes. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You've taken some old clothes off and you've put some new clothes on. I guess if there is a hierarchy of sinfulness in any of these verses, Paul makes lying The one at the top. Do not lie to each other because you've taken off the old self. You see, lying is the most destructive, most incompatible way of being to the new world that Jesus is inaugurating in our lives. A lie is incredibly destructive, isn't it? A very small, simple lie destroys a marriage, a family, a friendship, a business partnership, a working relationship, overnight. Because somehow when, when we lie, we're saying, I'm no longer belonging to the kingdom of truth. It was a lie that started the whole thing off. You know, if you eat that fruit, hey, did God say you'll die? And it all unraveled. Uh, and, and Paul says, therefore, whatever, whatever, goodness, as you fight for the new world, as you fight for the new thing that God is, let truth be your watchword. Let truth be what you align yourself uh, to. And uh, so you, you put off and you put on. And I, I love the way that it ends uh, in this way about what you wear. You see... Um, there's kind of a balance in these verses that we all need to be aware of and we'll all tend to one or the other, okay? When we start talking about putting off and killing, it sounds like it's all dependent on us. You with me? You have to fight it. You have to put off. You have to kill and and so on. You have to take active responsibility. It requires effort on your part. And then other times people say, well, is the Christian life really about effort, trying harder? No, it's about that heart change, which he spent two chapters talking about, and so, this idea of taking off the old and putting the new reminds us that as we take responsibility for what's true in our hearts and our lives, we are given a new way of life to wear. You can't make that up, you can't manufacture it. It is a gift to you. As Christ lives in you, He produces His life, He offers you a new cloak to where is it is it about you yeah it is about you being absolutely determined and totally committed to sorting out what's wrong in your life what did jesus say if your hand causes you to sin cut it off i mean it's clear isn't it enough deal with it ruthlessly and radically and yet at the same time To be held in tension and balance, this new way of life is a gift that is given to us because I cannot live this way by myself and neither can you. And when we think we can live this way by ourselves, the enemy has got us trapped because we will remain in a sense of failure and inadequacy. What we need is breakthrough. And so this new cloak that we're invited to wear is a beautiful thing. Because it says that if you're faithful and just, back to John 1 John 1 verse 9, if you're faithful and just uh, and you confess your sin, if you're honest about your heart, if you're willing to deal with it ruthlessly, well, what does it say we get given? What does that verse say? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us. What else? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some people get stuck or they only go as far as the forgiveness. I'm forgiven. That's a beautiful thing. But I tell you, to be cleansed is of a much greater beauty. You know that shame that you feel? That guilt on the inside? That thing that you can't shake off? To be cleansed not only deals with what's past, but to be cleansed means its hold on you as you step into the future is no longer there. So we deal with it ruthlessly. We take responsibility for it. Yet we recognize this is something that Christ is doing in me. And here, verse 11, where we started, back to where we started, as we lift our gaze and our lives, here emerging among us is a new community where. The distinctions of race, religious, culture, political, economic, social, whatever they might be. Whatever divides us is being taken away as we discover Christ is all and in all. It's why when you get the vision of Revelation at the end of time, it says, and I didn't understand this for a while, and there is no longer any sea. And I didn't like that. I quite like the sea. I'm not sure actually it means there is no sea. But in there cultural context as they wrote revelation the sea was a metaphor for everything that divided them they couldn't conquer the sea the sea separated them off from one another you could understand that couldn't you in their little wooden boats and rowing and so gosh i mean who'd go to sea in, in the things that they used to go to sea? the sea was like the enemy that separated them there is a new world coming with that which separates us from each other is no longer there and it is, was it Friday night? You forget where you hear all these different things, but about the the, the fullness of who we are is to to love, is to know, sorry, and to love, and to be loved, and to be known. That's the community that God calls us to, that it might be a light to the world, because that's what he's doing in the world. And wherever there is division, and hatred, and confrontation, every place which is war-torn, we remember that God is doing something different and we join him in the new world that is already underway. And that's the place of ultimate blessing. Let's just make our response as we share bread and wine together, shall we? As we come to this this moment, this table, this place, What what, what did he do? As he he stretched out his arms, he was bringing people together. Uh, as, As he reached one arm, as it were, to heaven and one arm down to us, he was bringing people together. He was bringing together that which is broken and separate inside us, that which is broken and separate between us, And ultimately that which was broken and separate from from God. And so we break this bread as Jesus' body was broken on the cross. And in a moment or two we'll share it with one another. This is my body broken, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then after supper he took the cup and said, This cup is the new The new promise. The new deal. The way it will ultimately be. You will drink again. When? In the kingdom of heaven. It's a sign. It's a a tangible sign that we are part of something now that is unstoppable. And ultimately it won't depend on you or me. We can join in or not. But it will happen. He is doing this in the world. But the beauty is through this moment he invites us to be part of what he is doing let's make our prayer the song king of kings majesty i lay my all before you now in royal robes i don't deserve i live to serve your majesty let's quietly use this song you can stand and sit create some space let's just offer our lives back to the one who is all and in all